Heavenly Father, this weekend our nation has existed for 240 years, which seems like forever to us. But to you it's as brief as our fireworks. But our world and our ways of life are passing away as are we. And we seek to hold on to something lasting. May these words of our beloved apostle immerse themselves in our minds, nourish our hearts, and comfort us in the assurance that in you we have something that will never die. Help us to know that you are with us and we are with you always. In the name of your living word, we pray. Amen. Our text today is First uh, John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. I believe it's on page 1023 in your red um, pew Bibles. Um, in, this, in this passage, as in all of his writings, John uses words that are simple. The words of a fisherman that he always was. But his thoughts are anything but simple. The thoughts are the thoughts of the elder, the beloved apostle who knew the Lord intimately and his, in his earthly life and who has seen him clothed in all of his splendor on the throne of heaven. So don't let the simple language fool you. This is deep theology. So before we get lost in this ocean of ideas, let's be crystal clear about where he's going with today's text. The end point in what he's trying to tell us in these verses is the end point for the entire letter, and it's found in the following verse, verse 13. So let's start there. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Last week, we talked about the biblical doctrine of regeneration, the new birth which results in love for other believers, unburdened obedience to God, and victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. But... Given that our current performance in these areas is, shall we say, lacking or less than perfect, during times of testing, we may worry, am I really reborn as a child of God or am I fooling myself? And this is a critical question. It is a matter of life and death. Two years ago today, my father died. So I will always remember on the 4th of July weekend that life is short. Our days are numbered, and that number is small. Of course, it's natural to wonder about our fate after death and to seek reassurance when it seems imminent. But such wondering leads to wandering. According to the legends, 16th century Spanish conquistador, Ponce de Leon, wandered across Florida searching for the fountain of youth. Too bad he didn't look in 1 John 
chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. Because in his day too, John saw his flock wandering into myth. And so he wrote this letter. With that thought in mind, let me read you today's passage with an emphasis that I'm sure you will recognize. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. So this is my first point for those of you who like to fill in the outlines. John uses a law court analogy so that you can be satisfied, convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that you are born again and you will live forever. The witnesses in this courtroom are divine and human. In verse 9, John states that this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. That's the divine witness. In verse 10, he states that whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. That's the human witness. You, yes, you, are the witness, the second witness confirming God's witness. These two witnesses arrayed to make the case for or against your eternal destiny are God and yourself. The evidence that these two witnesses present is in con. Testable. When a human witness testifies, what he says is true when it conforms with objective reality, things as they truly are. God's testimony is similar but superior. When God testifies, what he says is true because objective reality conforms to what he says. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. 
And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. John presents the testimony of these witnesses along three lines of evidence. The water, the blood, and the spirit. In the time remaining, I'm going to, I think we can profit profit from developing these lines of interest. I'm going to give special attention to the water and the blood. The spirit, the spirit's testimony is very deep and a very big deal, but it's just too complex to cover in a short sermon. So uh, bear with me, we'll be going a little bit longer with the water and the blood. Um, So let's start with the water. I propose to you that the water is the water of baptism and rebirth. Which, of course, raises further questions, doesn't it? What does baptism mean? And what does baptism have to do with eternal life? Well, at baptism, a new believer calls on the name of Jesus Christ as his or her Lord and Savior. It's a public proclamation of a personal response of faith to the good news of Christ's sacrificial death and resurrection. But nobody baptizes themselves. The church hears and affirms your profession of faith, and in the ordinance of baptism which our Lord instituted, recognizes you as a brother or sister and a child of God. So that's the human witness to the water of our baptism and regeneration. But there's also a divine component to the witness of the water baptism as well. At our baptism, we proclaim our response to a promise that God has initiated. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So in baptism, we are buried with Christ into his death. We give up who we used to be, and we become for him. But he doesn't leave us underwater. We're raised again with him out of judgment through God's generous provisions for us. Peter compares our fate to the fate of Noah and his family in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our baptism, then, signifies a death to what we once were and a rebirth in union with our risen Savior. But John also speaks in verse 6 of Christ having come through the water 
and in blood, in water and in blood. Past tense. So we're not talking about his second coming, which is still in the future, but his incarnation, which is in the past. So what was the water of Christ's coming? At the incarnation of the Son of God, he died to the glory he had from before the creation of the world. As Paul puts it in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 7, Have in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The waters of Christ's incarnation were inside the womb of his mother, the amnion. Into this bag of water, the eternally begotten word of God, vast beyond measure, became something too small to see. The power that holds the universe together became powerless. The source of life became dependent on another for his life. Giving up the glory that he had shared with the Father from the foundation of the world, Christ immersed himself in his mother's humanity. He emerged from the water of his birth a human like us, but also not like us. In that virgin fountain, he became God's anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, the heir of David's throne. Let me speak for a moment about the incredible prophetic witness to the intricate development of this incredible historic event. About 3,000 years ago, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 13 through 16, the prophet Nathan delivers the following promise from God to David concerning his son, Solomon. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Fast forward about 300 years. The king of Judah was threatened by an alliance between Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel. It looked like God had given up on the house of David. The prophet Isaiah offered the king a miraculous sign that would confirm God's continuing faithfulness to his promise to David's line. When the king refused such a sign, God's own choice of a sign was offered to the royal house. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, 
and shall call his name Emmanuel. Fast forward again, another hundred years. A king named Jeconiah reigns in Jerusalem for precisely three months before he's carted away into exile in Babylon along with Daniel. King Jeconiah earns the following curse from God by the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 30. Thus says the Lord, Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Now, Jeconiah wasn't the last king of Judah. He was succeeded by his uncle, Zedekiah. And he wasn't physically childless either. As recorded in Matthew chapter 1, verse 12, Jeconiah goes on to sire the royal line in captivity. And after the deportation in Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of of Zerubbabel. So here's the question facing Joseph, the Davidic heir, 600 years later. How can God keep his promise to establish the throne of the house of David forever, which he made in 2 Samuel 7, while honoring the curse that he placed on the descendants of David's heir, Jeconiah, in Jeremiah 22? The answer comes to him in the words of the angel, as we read in Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 through 25. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save the people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. How did Joseph know? Have you ever wondered? How did he know that this angel that appeared in his dream was from the Lord and not a lying spirit? He knew it because Joseph was a faithful Jew who knew his Bible, who knew his prophecies, particularly prophecies intimately connected with the fate of his own family. He saw in the words of the angel the fulfillment of both the blessing and the curse. And so, Jesus, God's God's word, our salvation, truly God with us, the anointed king, destined to reign forever, free of the curse of Adam, free of sin, free of death. Surely now he would fulfill the words of the psalmist that we read in Psalm 2, 
verses 7 through 9. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Incredible power. Beyond the dreams of any tyrant who has ever lived, dwarfing the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, Alexander, Caesar. But it was not good enough for our Lord. Not sufficient for him to be the glorious, eternally reigning Lord over a doomed humanity and a fallen world. Rather, he came to seek and to save the lost, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so he sets aside his royal birthright, submitting to the baptism of John, a baptism of repentance for transgressions that were not his own. John the Baptist sets the scene for us in Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now. For this is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And so, Jesus goes down into the water again. This time, the water of the Jordan. He goes in, the great king. He comes out, the suffering servant of the Lord. And so, the author of our epistle testifies in his gospel, John chapter 1, verses 29 to 31. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed. To Israel. The water is the water of baptism and rebirth in Christ. It anoints us and prepares us to enter into the divine presence, just as the waters of Christ's birth anointed him and prepared him to enter into human presence. But as John emphasizes in verse 6, Jesus came not by water only, but by the water and the blood. So now my second point, let's talk about the blood. Let me start by reminding you of an interesting passage in John. John chapter 19, verses 31 through 37. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross for the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So 
But when the soldiers came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Notice again the words of testimony, the words of the courtroom. We've already talked about the water of his death into which we are baptized. What is the significance of the blood? The unbroken bones remind us of the unbroken bones of the Passover lamb. It was blood that marked out the homes of the children of Israel as God's people. Recall that the blood of the Passover lamb was used to mark their homes, protecting their firstborn from death in the tenth plague. Death had already taken place in this household, and so the angel of, the death, of death must pass over this house. But marking your home in this way was an act of faith. Because very clearly, it marked you out as Pharaoh's enemy under the protection of God. Please understand how dramatic an act of rebellion that was. Imagine painting a red crescent on your door the evening before September 11th, 2001. And you got the idea. I want to propose to you That the blood is the blood of the new covenant, poured out for the forgiveness of sin. The new covenant was described for you in fairly, in, in great detail in today's reading from the ninth chapter of the letter to the Hebrews. But the New Testament atonement is rooted in the Old Testament, so let's, let's talk about that for a second. Atonement, fortunately, has um, Anglo-Saxon roots, the word. So it's Very simple. It means A-T, at, O-N-E, one meant, at, one meant. It's a uniting of what has been separated and alienated. In this case, humanity and the world from divinity. The shed blood of Christ allows us to have fellowship with God. It is Christ's shed blood which makes at-one-ment for our sins, and which we remember when we celebrate the other ordinance that Christ initiated, the Lord's Supper. But again, according to 1 John chapter 5, verse 6, Jesus is the one who has come by water and blood. So again, what was the blood of the incarnation? For this, let me talk to you as a physician. In Mary's womb, there was an organ. It was called a placenta. It's still called a placenta. Both mother and child contribute to the formation of that organ, and it's difficult to tell where one begins and the other ends. It is an organ of unity, of at-one-ment, if you prefer. Into that organ flowed the blood of Christ, the moment his heart started to beat. But that blood 
was in intimate contact with Mary's own blood, which provided food, water, oxygen to the growing child within her. The bread of life, the bringer of manna in the wilderness, was nourished by the blood of his human mother through the placenta. Essentially, a life support system, more poetically, an ark. The blood of the mother provides the food which permits the infant to survive. Every human in this world that's born enters through water and blood. I have seen this many times. And it is an impressive amount of water. And it is an impressive amount of blood. This is how the Lord entered the world, through the blood and water of his mother's womb. This is how we enter the kingdom, through the blood and water of our Savior's life and death. Surrender of life was an essential prerequisite for the granting of God's forgiveness and serves as a foundation for our fellowship with him. Once a year, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the blood of the Old Testament sin offering was sprinkled on the altar and on the Ark of the Covenant by the high priest. Before I read this passage to you, let me remind you of the temple's layout, which is mentioned in passing. Inside the court of the tabernacle, where God's people assembled, was the tent of meeting. And in front of the tent of meeting was the bronze altar. The front half of the tent was the holy place, where the priests served every other day of the year. And the veil divided the holy place from the most holy place, which could be entered only by the high priest and only on Yom Kippur. Inside the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant, and on top of the Ark was the mercy seat. So, we read about the atonement ceremony in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 15 through 19. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Then he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. Blood, as um, the author of Hebrews mentioned, also sealed the old covenant according to Exodus chapter 24. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar on the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men 
of the people to, of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then, I lost my place. Then he took the blood of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Because the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you, behold the blood of the covenant the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And so the blood is also the sign of the new covenant. Paul discusses this in the institution of the Lord's Supper when he discusses it in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now let me point out an interesting contrast between the old and the new covenant here. The old covenant blood was what? Thrown onto the people of God. It remains separate from them. We drink the blood of the new covenant. This is a huge difference. Blood is the seed of life. And the Israelites were forbidden to consume not only the blood of their Messiah, not only human blood, any blood, according to Leviticus chapter 17. If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourns among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your sin. souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood. Neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Anyone also of the people of Israel, of the strangers who sojourn among them, who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten, shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is in its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature. For the life of every creature is in its blood. We are free to drink the blood of Christ only because he and we are one. His shed blood is our shed blood. His shed life is our shed life. The blood is the blood of the new covenant and speaks of our union with Christ. Finally, and briefly, let me talk to you about the Spirit, because it is the Spirit who is the one who testifies. The Spirit of truth provides both a corporate and an internal witness, confirming the validity of the truth of these claims. This is, of course, God's Spirit, and He is characterized by His fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, 
goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And this spirit testifies through the water and the blood that Jesus is the one, is one with God, and Jesus is one with man. The Spirit has testified in history through God's words, through our church ordinances, the waters of baptism, the Lord's Supper, and historically in the blood of our martyrs. But not only that, he continues to testify, providing us with this internal witness of our union with God through Christ. Though we are apart, we belong to him and he to us. As Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back in fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You may or may not know this, but um, followers of Islam also believe in the virgin birth of Christ. In the Quran, Surah 19 to be precise, Muhammad says that Christ spoke as an infant, claiming this as his first miracle. Well, in a way, they're right. Christ did speak when he was first born. But you know what he said? He said what we all say. (coughs) What does that mean? It means what it always means. I belong with you. And you belong with me. And do you know what Mary's response was? It's not recorded in Scripture. But I'm willing to bet it was the universal maternal response to the cry of her child. She felt the response in her uterus as it contracted and said, that was inside of me. She feels it in her breasts as they fill with milk, saying, I am responsible to feed this child. This is my child. This helpless baby is my responsibility. And most of all, she felt it in her heart. Like Eve, at the birth of her first son, God has given me a man. Or like Adam, when Eve joined him, what came from his flesh. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He shall be called man, to paraphrase Adam, because he was taken from a woman. At the baptism of Jesus, the divine spirit descends on him, and the voice of the Father speaks his own acknowledgement. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. You ever seen a father at a football game when his son catches the winning touchdown pass? Does he say, my, that boy has potential. No, he says, that's my boy. This is Jesus catching the winning touchdown. God says, that's my boy. 
And so, in the courtroom of our heart, does the testimony of the Spirit concur? Does our spirit concur with the testimony of Christ's Spirit? God has sent his Son to reconcile himself with a fallen world. He belongs to the world, and yet he belongs to God. His Son has embraced death and dishonor to restore me to life and honor. Do I acknowledge that the price paid was justified and that my life now belongs to him to do with as he chooses? Because if I do not concur, I stand condemned by my own lips. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have gone to extreme lengths to reassure us of your faithfulness to your promise of eternal life. Help us to hold firm to this assurance, and may it be our refuge in time of trial and testing. In the name of Jesus, your incarnate testimony, who speaks as our kinsman redeemer, we pray with confidence before the throne of your grace. Increase.